You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. Very pleased today to have James Dunstan, our special guest today, who's general counsel for Tech Freedom, a business innovation-focused think tank, and founder of Mobius Legal Group. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Robert and Keegan. Really happy to be here. Wonderful. So today we want to bring up a, you know, we want to invite you on to discuss the war in space as the new high ground. And, you know, this has been getting a lot of coverage in the mainstream press, and there's probably a lot of a lot of myths associated around whether it's Space Force, Space Corps, what the military is, is and isn't allowed to do in space. And we thought today that maybe we could dis- discover or share more about what's going on in terms of why and why investors and people interested in the business of space do need to pay attention to this topic and, and how there might be potential both opportunities as well as challenges in the space domain. Great, great. So, Jim, you, had a, you have a, quite a deep background in uh, you know, telecom policy and you've been doing space law for a long time. What's your sort of impression with the current state of affairs with this new or renewed interest by the military in space? Or was this interest always there? I think the interest has always been there. It just hasn't been as public as it has been in the past. I know, you know, if you want to sort of jump right into kind of, you know, the Space Force and what that's all about, I mean, that idea has been kicking around here in Washington, D.C. for at least a decade, if not longer. And it's been Mm. sort of you know, filtering around and trying to find its legs. And, and then it suddenly got a champion in President Trump. And because of the kind of politics that we're looking at in Washington, D.C. right now, it instantly got immediate supporters and immediate distract, detractors. And it went sort of, you know, bipolar like so many things do. But but no, the thought of, of a space force or a renewed emphasis on the military's involvement in space, that's been around for a very, very long time. You could argue that the only thing that that the actual space force as an agency, you know, really changes is not what the military is doing in space, but just rather the organizational structure of how of how it's being done. In other words, where the responsibilities ultimately lie. You know, the it's not as if uh, we're entering an era where the Air Force uh, is suddenly going to be putting up a whole bunch of new satellites that weren't already there. I think it was uh, said one like NRO's budget on its own is like upwards of over twenty four billion dollars or something like that compared to NASA's, which is about you know, four less than that, give or take. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, military spending on space has outstripped NASA basically ever every year since the end of the Apollo program, almost fifty years ago. So, mm. military has always been a space player, and and so you're correct. In some sense, the space force could just be kind of a reshuffling of uh, of responsibilities, but I think it's actually a little bit deeper than that, and that's coming into response mm. to to several things, both new players new foreign policies, as well as, I think, a continued and deepening reliance on outer space assets by our military. I mean, our warfighters desperately need space assets, and if if those are compromised um, in an attack, uh, it it can really harm the boots on the ground. 
And I think that is the perfect place for us to get into the topics at hand for today about uh, the new high ground. So let's, uh, you actually perfectly left off on uh, what is kind of the first segment of this, which is about kind of what the state of space is, what the new threats are, and the reality of just uh, what not only the military significance of space has become, but also the fact that it is now an area of an absolute economic necessity. According to the United Launch Alliance, what we would consider the gross space product, the amount of you know capital generated annually from satellites and space launch providers, is now upwards of over $330 billion a year, growing rather rapidly. So this is an important sector of the global economy that is now facing new threats and new players. Now onto the military side of things. We know kind of the obvious things, the you know, spy satellites are something everybody's familiar with, but we don't Few people often think about what the GPS network uh, was originally built to do, and what it still, do, what purpose it still serves as a military necessity. No, that's absolutely correct. I mean, for ver, in fact, for many many years, the GPS system as a whole was degraded for the commercial market because mm. the government didn't want to really fully let out of the bag how precise. GPS tracking and GPS satellites could be, and now that's about a decade ago it was opened up so that we all now can you know, can can find out exactly where we are down to a you know a meter or so, and and so many of our military systems are absolutely reliant on GPS for their coordinates and for their tracking and for their mapping, uh, and so yes the the, the loss of the GPS absolutely. system even on a temporary basis not only would have a lot of us driving off the road but would have a lot of military assets. You know, being put down at the same time, right? To say nothing of what it would do to international shipping, considering how many, you know, how many, how many captains of oil tankers do you think can still navigate by compass and sextant? Yes, yes, I, I think we'd have the Exxon Valdez on an hourly basis. We seem to be there's there's some there's almost some contradictions though. On one hand, you you hear about the opening, you know, opening of space to you know lowering the cost of access to space. And we have more international players, not just the the current and former superpowers that are involved. But with that access to space, you know, the lowering of the cost of the technology, whether it's um, the electronic side or in the other areas that you need to sort of build the launch system, you now have potentially other actors with questionable motives. And you probably need someone or some way to have sort of a good cop and pad cop, because it seems like although we have, you know, there, there are treaties, there's, there's not a lot of rules for the road, or, or is this something that's a misunderstanding? No, I, I think you're correct. I mean, we, we do have generalized rules in the, in the international treaty regime, and they pretty clearly say, say you know, no weapons of mass destruction in orbit, no placement of any sort of weapons on the moon or any other celestial body, no military basis. But beyond that, I mean, it's, you know, there's not much more meat on the bone than just those few words. And so kind of how you interpret how much militaries can do in outer space, you know, gets you sort of scratching your head and thinking about, okay, what do we do? And obviously, from the United States perspective, as you say, we're you know, as launch costs are going down, satellite systems are increasing. We're increasing the amount of of assets uh, we have, both from a military standpoint and in the private sector. Sector, and you know, we rely on our military to protect those assets. And the question is, how do you do that? What's the best way to do that, both for again protecting military operations as well as the rest of us? I mean, there would be a whole lot of people really, really angry. If if somebody took out a, for example, a geostationary satellite that was transmitting 
all of the, the cable programming down in the United States. A lot of folks would be unhappy if that were to happen. That's, that's possible to do now, either through a uh, electronic jamming, localized, or a you know, anti-satellite weapon. And so the military's role, one of its roles, and one of the roles for the Space Force is going to be to figure out how to defend uh, those assets that are sitting up there at 22,300 miles orbit. And then you have the scenario you know, of existing economic sectors being exported to space and creating new dependencies and new uh, scenarios for protection as well. Uh, probably the most immediate example of this is the possible exportation of internet service pr providers to satellite-based platforms. The big one of, that everyone is familiar with, of course, is SpaceX's own Starlink program. I mean, right now we see primarily the advantages, but consider, if you will, the security risks that come from that as well. Now, we talk a lot about what it means for the, for the risk of satellite-to-satellite co -satellite collision, but imagine what it means for the United States or any other na nation where their internet net access is dependent on being able to secure, as of last count, something like 42,000 satellites that SpaceX wants to launch that are all operating primarily in low Earth orbit. If you had Iran, uh, for instance, has developed a ground-based laser that is designed to just blind satellites. If you had something like that that could foul up its uh, ability to, its guidance navigation control, and knock out, say, a few hundred, you'd not just wipe out abil you know, people's ability to stream Netflix, you could potentially harm the international exchange of uh, finance. You could seriously hurt the global economy. So what do you think is uh, the solution to that, if one exists? Is that, what's the, what is the way to be able to offset bad actors like that? Is it diplomatic, or is it, is it a case of uh, might makes right? So I, I think it's, it, it's multifaceted. And again, I think the, the military, of course, has been dealing with this for their own assets for, for many years. And so they've had a policy going back almost a decade now of diversification, of taking their critical traffic, critical comm traffic across the military and spreading it out over as many assets as possible so that if there was an actual attack, that you wouldn't lose everything. That's also one of the great benefits of a uh, non-geostationary large constellation approach like Starlink has done. It, is, it would take an awful lot of lasers or an awful lot of anti-sats to take out enough satellites once you've got a mature system up there, up there to totally disrupt things. And so there's a, there's a great value in, in this diversification. And the other thing to remember about Starlink is at least in the foreseeable future, and I would say at least three or four decades, it's not going mm -hmm. to be the true backbone of data communications on the planet. It's going to be a supplement and it's going to be an extender into rural and areas that don't have the terrestrial facilities. And so I don't, I don't think that there's a, a realistic risk of a sort of war in space that, that breaks out impacting things, as you said, in the near term. In, in the longer term, yeah, it, it certainly is. And so I think one of the things that the military can do and is doing is help helping guide industry into best practices that they've already adopted internally to, as much as possible, as I said, diversify the communication across as many assets as possible to make them less vulnerable to an attack. And, and, and by the way, you know, I, I know we're going to be kind of far-reaching in this talk, but I, I don't want to sit here and sort of 
say that, you know, the next war in space is going to be, you know, an anti-satellite war, because I personally don't think that's mm. going to be the case. I think, I think we have bigger, more long-term challenges that we need to look at. I think we can do a good job of protecting assets today and in the near future, but I think it's the real deep thinking about what happens in a cislunar economy that we've got to be worried about and, and what happens if, if certain entities, for example, grab key positions on the moon or, or on Mars and what happens then. And, and so, you know, I, I don't want to spend you know, all of my time thinking about, and I don't spend my time thinking so much about how to harden satellites and make sure they're not shot down so much as thinking about what are the rules of the road in the long term that we make sure as a country that the United States, that that space remains open for everyone to go out and especially you know, to take our economy up there and to be able to, frankly, make money in space. And so the military will have a role in helping industry do that. Let's kind of get back to this idea of strategic depth in space, particularly this notion of how space law is going to adapt, especially if uh, indeed we start seeing not just more services being offered in space, but more products being built out in space. Now, right now, the, to my knowledge, the only law in the books uh, that has anything you know remotely leading to the concept of property rights in space is the 2015 Space Act that uh, the U.S. Congress passed, which more or less just creates the notion that if you mine something or develop something in space, the U.S. government will recognize that as your property. Is that uh, a bit of an oversimplification for you, Jim? No, let's, that, that's that's close enough. As we say, close enough for government at work. Yeah, and, right. and so the United States led the the fight on that. I was involved in in that drafting that legislation and, and pushing it through. And I, I testified before United States Senate on on those issues. And you know we've we've already seen response in that. We've got Luxembourg, which has adopted somewhat similar domestic legislation. And the I- idea being that if the United States does take the lead on this and establish U.S. domestic law on the subject, that if we can get more spacefaring nations to adopt similar, then that's a lot easier to turn that into a treaty regime than to start with a blank sheet of paper and try and start over on you know, revamping the Outer Space Treaty, which every time it's been attempted has just been a complete and abject failure because there are just too many conflicting ideas about how space should be governed. Right. If you're dealing with, the, if you're trying to reform a treaty that establishes the concept of terra nullis, that's, I had imagined that you're going to run into a lot of, uh, at the very least, philosophical differences. Yes. But if we do run into this, this scenario where more and more countries start creating the concept of property rights in space, you know, yay for business, but we're also going to start running into the concept where the moment a country is able to, at the very least, make tax revenue off of products generated in space, they're going to start asking the question, well, who really owns those asteroids that are being mined or those space stations that are being done? What laws govern them? Is, say, Bigelow Aerospace, you know, sells to a company that is mainly making fiber optic cables and microgravity a space station. Who is ultimately sovereign over that? And right now we, we still say Terra Nullis, but as we've talked about, as launch costs go down, more and more of this stuff is going to get in orbit. 
Do you think we're going to start, I mean, is it inevitable that we're going to have to start just, you know, kind of dismantling this concept that space doesn't really belong to any single nation, that there will in fact be borders exported uh, to the stars? So unpacking that, there's really three issues there. You know, Mm. first, we need to make a distinction between objects that are launched into space because Mm -hmm. those always have and always will remain the property of the launching state. So if if Bigelow launches a a hotel into space and the launching state is the United States because they authorized the launch, then that property is going to be the United States property. Okay. And by the way, if you want to see a really interesting discussion of this about seven or eight years ago, it was either, I think it was Orange County, California, tried to apply a personal property tax on the direct TV satellites in geostationary orbit because they were built in Hawthorne, California. And the, the, the argument was they were the per- personal property of direct TV. And notwithstanding the fact they were out in space, they still had to pay the taxes on them. And it was the county lost eventually, but it was a really interesting discussion there. Uh, we could have had a world where we had the empire of Orange yes, County. Out yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 believe me, the, the the fact that you know SpaceX has such a facility out there and hasn't abandoned it means it read that same decision and realized that it it could beat the, the Orange County in the same way if they ever tried to you know apply personal property taxes to to the Falcon Nine or or, or the you know the Falcon Heavy. So so we need to sort of put that in one bucket the second bucket is the you know the asteroid mining is is the raw materials which are mined and processed and turned into things that then becomes an interesting that becomes the the, the more interesting question as to who has jurisdiction over that and then the third is at some point if i'm mining an asteroid and I mine a certain percentage of it, haven't I effectively taken control of that asteroid? And I, you know, in other words... This is the uh, territorial equivalent of the ship of Theses, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that gets into some really interesting concepts of interference zones under Article 9 of the 67 Outer Space Treaty. And, and there, there's, there's some decent scholarly work. A lot more needs to be done uh, about that, um, you know, making sure that we all can coexist. But that's, you know, those are the scenarios that I think are going to be the most interesting and the most troubling, especially if we can, if you talk about really sort of key strategic places in the solar system and what are you going to do and how are you going to protect them? For example, you can talk about, you know, Shackleton Crater and the peaks of eternal light at the South Pole of the Moon. There are places on the South Pole of the Moon where where the sun is available, you know, 300 and what, 40 some days a year. And it would be great to put a solar collector down there so that you could power activities in the South Pole. Places like that, places like the Lagrange points, you know, the, the, the stable orbits yep. that the first people to get there and establish a something there may well argue that, no, you can't come put your you know, put your thing into this Lagrange point because I'm already there and you'll interrupt me or interfere with me if you do that. And so there's a lot of sort of high ground, deep thinking that the U.S. government isn't particularly good at doing. The U.S. military is slightly better at doing. 
and countries like China are really good at thinking about these things, these sort of 100-year plans about strategic places. And if you in particular look at what China has done in the South China Sea and and specifically look at their reaction to the, the South China Sea arbitration in the world court, you know, you can paint a pathway where gaining the high ground on some of these places strictly for defensive purposes, getting there first and establishing yourself there is going to be really important. And it's it's going to come quicker than I think a lot of people realize. I mean, you know, China has talked about 2030 to 2050. I don't think we have that long. I, I think I, I think if we want to ensure that space, in fact, does remain free and open, we're going to have to be first movers, and we being the United States, to get out there mm. in advance of any other country sort of you know, making a claim, even if it's not a property claim, even if it's not a territorial claim, you know, at, at least a use claim or a non-interference claim. And, th- and those are going to be in, in really important issues to be thinking about, not 10 years from now, but really today and over the next few years. I like. I often like to liken it to uh, the Japanese development of a lot of their assets in mainland Asia, uh, leading up to the Second World War. Japan, you know, starts to industrialize mid nineteen, mid to late nineteenth century. They're working from an island with very few available natural resources, so inevitably they set up business opportunities in mainland Asia. Those opportunities grow and grow to the point to where they aren't technically Japanese territory, but suddenly you have to start sending in security forces to back them up and. You need to build out navies to be able to move move and supply those security forces, and it really kind of runs away from you. So, yeah, I mean, I think we can comfortably say that once you've taken that first step to creating the concept of property rights in space, you're inevitably setting you know in motion the step to eventually create the concept of uh, sovereignty over territory on the moon, Mars, and wherever. So this has been an absolutely fascinating topic, uh, Jim, and we're really, really lucky to have you on today. All right. Well, Jim, thank you very much for joining us today. We will probably ask to have you on again to discuss anytime we need to talk about space law. Jim, where can people find you online? Yeah. So, you know, people can reach me at jdunston at techfreedom.org or jdunston at mobiuslegal.com. Those are my email addresses. And the websites are the same as the last one. I don't update my law firm that often, but the Tech Freedom site gets gets updated a lot. And yeah, you can find me there. So Jim Dunstan, everybody, thank you for coming on. And thank you for joining us today on Brave New Space, discussing the new high ground and the future of space policy. And thank you very much to Baron for uh, helping nominate Jim to be on our program today. So I want to thank everyone for listening, and thanks so much to James Dunstan of uh, General Counsel for Tech Freedom, as well as uh, the founder of Mobius. Thanks so much, Jim. I appreciate it. been my pleasure. You are listening to Brave New Space, the new high ground with Jim Dunstan today. On our next episode, we're going to have guest John Tucker as we discuss emerging space hubs. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. On the next episode of Brave New Space, we'll be going over failures and how the industry has learned from them. 